0: The only thing that actually matters in the study is the person's body language, their non-verbal behaviour. And what we found, simply put, is that you can say the same words, you can wear the same clothes, but if you slightly change your non-verbal communication, you can increase the number of people who would vote for you in an election by more than 58%. You can increase the number of people who think you're a good leader by 44%. You can convince. 42% more people. And you've said the same words, you are the same person, you wore the same clothes. And so for me, that really, it filled a gap that wasn't presented there in any other research that we could then go ahead and, and teach to our clients.
1: Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time.
2: Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk, and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated, or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook You Never Got.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. What if you could increase your leadership ratings by more than 40% without saying a word? Today, we're going to talk about executive presence and nonverbal communication, or what my guest today, Richard Newman, calls your body talk. In fact, that's the name of his company, which he founded. We're going to talk about the science that underpins his work. Yes, Richard has published in peer-reviewed journals, but also, and more importantly, the art of how to deploy those insights and make them work for you. Because we know as you rise in organizations, you are working through others, which makes the ability to influence, of which communication is a critical component, so important. Richard Newman is the founder and CEO of Body Talk, And over the past 23 years, his team has trained more than 130,000 business leaders. Yes, 130,000 business leaders around the world. He's a passionate and engaging speaker, has been called a rock star of communication on the stage. Something that his past um, would not have indicated would necessarily be his path. Can't wait to talk about that. Um, before becoming a communication coach and keynote speaker, Richard trained as a professional actor and has won the coveted Cicero Grand Prize for Best Speech of the Year. Richard, welcome to 97% Effective.
0: Thanks, Michael. Thank you for the introduction as well. I re- really appreciate that,
1: Richard. I alluded to your your past, and you know you've said that you grew up as a shy, introverted, autistic child, um, and now global keynote speaker. Um, connect the dots of how that occurred.
0: Yeah, so it was a long journey to get to uh, where I am now. So, uh, essentially. It was something that I've I've gone on as a journey since I was about four years old. So when when I was four, I was going to school like kindergarten and uh, really enjoying it. Everything was fine. And then just before my fifth birthday, we moved house and we went to this new, uh, I I got to this new school. And I remember distinctly the beginning of that day, showing up at this new place, looking at the exciting building and thinking, wow, life's going to be great here. And then my next memory is partway through that day, Uh, where we were sitting around this little table and there was little chairs like you get at that age and I was trying to talk to the kids just next to me And they sort of laughed at me, turned their back on me, didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I tried it with the kids on the other side. And I thought, okay, fair enough. They don't like me. Let me try over here. And that didn't work either. Then I tried to speak across the table and I thought, wait a second, I'm not connecting with anybody. And I suddenly felt like I was in this glass bubble, like I I couldn't connect with other children. I couldn't do the things that they were doing to connect with each other. And I really wasn't sure why. And it started this question in my mind along the lines of like, what's wrong with me? What's different with me? What's missing here? And I kept on asking myself that question as as I went then through my school years, up through being like a teenager, where my friends were having uh, the ability to build up friendships and and get girlfriends and do things that I wasn't able to do, even that I would notice where if we're out for dinner... I could see people having this engaging conversation, and I'd have things to contribute, but I just didn't know how to join the conversation. It was like looking at a at a freeway that doesn't have an on-ramp, thinking, how do I join this? I don't know what to do. And uh, so, I then started to study communication. I, I was given a book on communication by a friend of mine who could see that I was struggling. And it was a book on body language. And I suddenly thought, wow, this is opening my mind to the things that I never knew existed. And it suddenly gave me insights and a way into communication. So I got excited by it. And that started me on this path of, over the next sort of five or six years, I read over 200 books on the subject of communication, looking at body language, tone of voice, stage presence, uh, storytelling skills, you name it—anything that I thought would give me like a little edge uh, in my communication skills. Meanwhile, uh, my uh, my friends were all going off to university, and my parents were very keen that I would do the same. And I thought, actually, I don't feel like that's my path. I decided that I wanted to do something good for the world, and that led me to volunteering to be a teacher where I went off to the foothills of the Himalayas, where I was living in a little Tibetan monastery, uh, teaching English to Tibetan monks who didn't speak any English. And so the big challenge being, when I got there, I knocked on the front door and a monk came up to greet me, and he greeted me in Tibetan. And I remember looking at him thinking, wait a second, I thought I was here to improve your English. You don't speak any English? Uh, what am I going to do about this? And so, like, I went to their, uh, I went to their kitchen, and uh, I realised that I was going to be teaching them without a proper classroom, using a couple of uh, planks of wood that had been nailed together and painted black. They had a power cut almost every evening. So we're just using candles and I was speaking to people who didn't speak a word of English. And so I had to figure out a way through body language and tone of voice to connect with them just to get through this experience. And by the end of six months of living with them in in this place where, just bear in mind, this was 1995. We barely had electricity. There was no Sky TV. There was no emails, no mobile phones, no WhatsApps back then. Uh, It took six weeks for somebody from the UK to send me a letter and if I replied the same day it would therefore take three months for them to get my reply from the day they sent it so I was really cut off But by the end of six months, they they could have a good conversation in English with me. And I thought, wow, body language can do so much. I have to study this more. I came back to the UK and then started studying acting, where I was learning all about how to sit, stand, move and breathe in the way that could impact someone on stage and impact an audience and bring a character to life. And then I was talking to my hairdresser about this just shortly after I came out of acting school three years later. And uh, he said, "Who, who are you? What do you do? What are you interested in? And I talked to him about my experience with the monks and my experience at, at acting school. And he said, if I give you a free haircut, could you teach my team how to communicate? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I I can't do that. I don't know how to do that at all. He said, well, I'll give you a free haircut. Come back and figure it out. And I did this two-hour session for them for a free haircut that would have cost maybe 20 or 30 bucks, I forget. And they loved it. And I actually really enjoyed it too. And I kept on going back. And then word of mouth spread. And pretty soon I got this phone call from someone Who said he was the head of an engineering company and he said I've just had my hair cut today and my hairdresser tells me you're this amazing communication teacher could you come and work with my team we've got 30 engineers doing a big exhibition and so I I started to teach them I got a website going and I kept going on this journey of just thoroughly investigating communication and teaching it where I could to the point where and we can dig into this one uh where I I got published in the journal psychology for the research I was putting together this unique piece Uh, around things that can really improve your ratings and and your results Uh, but it wasn't until I was 44 so I'm 46 at the moment it wasn't until I was 44 that I finally realized part of what had been driving me to understand communication which is uh, that I am autistic and when I got this diagnosis I thought wait a second it's almost like that moment in um, for any Star Wars fans watching this where you suddenly work out that Darth Vader is Luke's dad, and you go, wait a second, I need to just go back for a moment through all of the stuff that's happened previous to this, just to figure out what the true meaning was in all of these interactions. And so that's what it was like for me, where I thought, oh, now I get it. This is what's driven me, and this is what's led me to see communication from a different perspective to other people, and therefore find insights that they didn't uh, see for themselves. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's a long answer to your question, but that's kind of a long journey I've been on too.
2: It's
1: a wonderful and very unique background, and I and I kind of laugh as I hear that because um, it's kind of go east, young man. Um, at the same time, you were there in Tibet; I was over in Beijing. Uh, so right. we have kind of parallel paths. Um, and and I love there in your story. There's both the science, right? You you really started to read about this, tried to figure it out, but then there's the part of applying it and. Your first customer is your hairdresser. Um, when when you first yeah. gave your first keynote speech, did you knock it out of the park? I just got to ask this.
0: Oh yeah, good question. I think. No, I think that for me, um, speaking and teaching was an evolving skill. You know, I, I feel I feel very grateful that my first client was a group of Tibetan monks who couldn't speak any English and probably couldn't tell me if I was terrible anyway. So, you know, I had that six months of getting up in front of them and getting up in front of kids uh, who I was teaching at a local Tibetan school as well, uh, who were aged 9 to 12. And so they were actually a much more challenging audience than the monks. So I was just gradually building skills then and then gradually building skills like in the back of a hairdressing salon and so on. And so by the time I was put on a bigger stage i'm trying to remember what the first one was but maybe by the time i was put in front of 100 or 200 people i got to that point almost like you know a stand-up comedian who would go out and do the circuit and they'd they'd work out what works for the audience and they eventually get that big gig it was fairly well honed so by the time i had a bigger audience it didn't feel like a big deal i was never really sort of dropped on a big stage i i really you know climbed the ladder to get to that place
1: Mm. it's it's nice to hear from an expert such as yourself, that it is an evolving skill. Um, mm. Watching some of your talks and um, and your and your training has been really inspiring uh, to me. So, two areas that I really want to talk about: one is, is is you alluded to the research you did in psychology, the the underlying science. So, this podcast is about the, the hard evidence. That there's a lot of very bad evidence out there, and a lot of yeah. myths, um, particularly around communication. Um, and then get into more of how you train people and, and some of the things you see, particularly because you do this globally um, to mm. very diverse audiences um, across the world. To to go into the science and um, that study, um, w- without going it into in-depth, even though we are kind of nerdy and geeky on this podcast, but just a, a brief overview of why you did it and what you were most interested in looking at.
0: So I think for me the quest towards building that piece was that there as you say there there's studies out there or ideas myths and notions that people have about body language and communication uh, where some of it is not proven uh, and some of it is, is just pla- plain false And particularly, I think the most well-known statistics about body language that people cite and have cited for many years is people often say, 7% of communication is words. And it's been taken so out of context, this message, where I've seen people, I've seen this on a website where someone said 7% of communication is words and therefore you need a personal branding expert who'll give you the right wardrobe. It has nothing to do with what the original study was about. So to clarify that piece, Albert Morabian back in, I believe this was 1968, something like that, uh, he did a study with uh, less than 60 people in California in one town where he did a study and he said to, to, to people, you can only answer a question by using the word maybe. So somebody would say to you, would you like a coffee? Shall we go out on the weekend? And you could only say maybe. And then when the person got the response when they were saying, maybe, the person listening to that would respond, how much of the information in this interaction are you taking from the words, the tone of voice, and the body language? of course in that setting the word is going to be low because it's the same word every time and it really just showed that body language stood out over tone of voice and even albert morabian was on bbc radio radio 5 in around 2010 where he himself said look it's really been taken very much out of context and people need to do further research and studies and so i was listening to that and i was looking at all the different books available any piece of research that i could find around body language and i realized that i was at the point where i'd been teaching it to Clients worldwide for over a decade, and that the studies that I'd found that I felt I could rely on had had limitations. And there were certain things we were starting to teach because we saw that we were getting results for people internationally, no matter what their background was, their age, their gender, their skin color. We were getting great reactions from certain pieces we were teaching that was building off of what we'd seen in research before. And so I said uh, to myself, I want to create a study that proves. If there is anything that you can do universally, non-verbally, that will improve your impact, because if we can do that, then we can take this study and use it to teach our clients. So I went to the head of psychology at UCL, which is Professor Adrian Furnham. And he's known as one of the top experts in psychology in the world today. And he's been involved in numerous papers on nonverbal communication and influence. And I said, here's what I want to do. I want to study everything, all of these different aspects of body language that I might teach. And I want to prove what is the best version of all of these for my clients in communication. And he said, look, you're studying way too big, way too broad. We've got to really (laughs) pin this down. And so we pinned it down to a few different areas that we wanted to particularly work on. But we worked on this. It was one of the largest studies that's ever been done of its kind. More than 2,000 people involved with this, where we we worked with uh, men and women aged from 18 to 65 from across Europe, uh, across Asia, and across the Americas. And we were showing them a video of someone speaking to them to see... How did they react to this person? And in every video we created, the person was saying the same words and wearing the same clothes. But what the people watching the video didn't realize, they saw one video. And uh, what we did was in each of the different videos, we would change the person. So it might be a man or a woman in the video. The person might have, uh, they might be older or younger. They might have lighter skin or darker skin because we wanted to see, do those things change our results from this video? And we found that none of them did. It didn't matter if we showed a video of an 18-year-old woman speaking to um, a man who was watching the video in Mumbai versus having a 50-year-old man uh, presenting the video to a woman who was watching it in California. Those things didn't matter. The only thing that actually mattered in the study is the person's body language, their non-verbal behavior. And what we found, simply put, is that you can say the same words, you can wear the same clothes, you, but if you slightly change your nonverbal communication, you can increase the number of people who would vote for you in an election by more than 58%. You can increase the number of people who think you're a good leader by 44%. You can convince 42% more people. And you've said the same words, you are the same person, you wore the same clothes. And so for me, that really, it filled a gap that wasn't presented there in any other research that we could then go ahead and, and teach to our clients.
1: So it was very much universal, right? I mean, you've, mm. gender, age, race, um, holding a lot of that constant, the nonverbal cues made the impact. And those nonverbal actions that you were looking at or did make the impact, I mean, in a nutshell, kind of what were the, the main pieces there? It sounded like posture and how people held themselves or their body.
0: Um, Yeah, exactly. So if anybody listening to the podcast wants to check out the full paper, it's available uh, from the journal Psychology Online. I think if you search nonverbal presence, Richard Newman, uh, Adrian Furnham, then you you can find the full study. But uh, just to give a quick example on this, uh, for example, uh, firstly, we took a look at people's posture. And we wanted to study things that we'd seen universally with our clients, but we wanted to see if this worked in the study. And so what we found is if you say the same words and wear the same clothes... But let's say that you are standing such that your weight is off on one side. So you could be in a chair, you could be standing up, but you're leaning off to one side. Uh, In this position, you're essentially physically looking like a pushover. Gravity is working against you. And if somebody gave you a quick nudge, you would fall over. So you're literally physically a pushover. And in that position, you've got the worst ratings. Uh, when we were testing this for different types of posture people could have. And this is something that we see so commonly with clients where they might typically either lean on one side or may sway back and forth, resting their weight on one hip and then resting on the other hip. You see this uh, so commonly. Whereas uh, if we tested that against, say somebody being upright in their posture and having their feet shoulder width apart where you're nicely grounded, if you give somebody a push in that position, they don't move because gravity is now working really strongly on their body. So they have gravitas, which is where that term uh, comes from. Gravity working efficiently, effectively on your body. We found that they then had much higher ratings. Um, And an interesting piece on this, I love this. It was a really small piece that we tested. We just wanted to see what position should your feet be in? If you've got upright posture and you're well balanced, does it matter where your feet are in that piece? We found that if you have your feet together, then you're seen as submissive and low status. Whereas you, ju- if you just move your feet from being together, you've got a good posture, good gestures, everything else is good, and you just move your feet from together to feet shoulder-width apart. So you go from a place of being... Uh, Small, if you like, to suddenly having gravitas, standing in an efficient way. Then suddenly, the number of people convinced by your message goes up by thirty-two percent just by changing that one simple thing. So it it was fascinating for us to look at all these different pieces and then to be able to go and teach validated information with our clients worldwide.
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic study. I'll I'll, I'll make it easy for people and put the link in the show notes. But I'd call out also when I was reading through it, two things. You know. One was also some of these individuals were basically taught these things, you know, not like for years. They learned it right before they went and did their recording. So it sounds like just simply adding these, obviously practicing it a little bit, but learning that it can be learned and can immediately make an impact.
0: That's exactly right. That's that's part of what I really loved about this. Well, there's two things to say about it. Firstly, I always say to clients when we're running a course, I'm going to give you these results in 30 minutes or less because it's so straightforward to do. And secondly, the reason it's so straightforward is that what we're teaching, what we discovered in this study is that it's not about learning manipulation techniques, sort of being something that you're not to try and forcibly convince people or have authority. It isn't that. What we discovered which was just a a wonderful blessing out of this, is that essentially what we were doing was showing people how to go back to how they're born to stand, how they're born to gesture. So if you go back to how you were naturally born to speak you get a much better reaction from people. And so uh, effectively what we do when we coach clients on this is that we we get them to unpick their habits, the various different Mm -hmm. habits and affectations they've built up through the years, which might be sort of casually standing off on one side with their foot jauntily put across the other one and thinking that it looks casual and so on. We say, let's just get rid of those things. Let's go back to when you were one year old and you were trying to stand up for the very first time, what did you do? If you stood up with your feet together, you fell over. If you stood up with your weight on one hip, you fell over. And eventually you worked out. The way for a human being to stand up most efficiently is feet shoulder-width apart, lifted sternum, strong posture, and suddenly everything works. And so we're, we're bringing people back to that most natural version of them. And it feels so mm-hmm. freeing. People often say, wow, you gave me my arms back. You gave me my sense of, you know, physical authority back. I feel more myself. I feel more confident because we're just taking away, the, away those little um, ineffective habits.
1: Yeah, and this is really interesting too. I mean, I would say, um, you know, a kind of misnomer is that, or another way of phrasing this, right? Your study shows this kind of universal body language. So even a petite, say, dark-skinned woman, if they are having a strong posture and following these things, they're going to have gravitas in their own way. This kind of, like you said, the kind of natural universal exactly.
0: And th- this actually really blew us away when we did the study because we thought there must there must be something that will impact this study. Sexism and racism will no doubt come into this, and where we test it in the world and who is watching that video will yeah. strongly impact the results. And we were absolutely stunned that we didn't find that. And so we found that. Uh, if you had someone and we, we would ask people who are taking part in the study, how old do you think the person is on the video? And so it ranged from uh, seeing somebody as being 18 years old up to 70 years old and to give people like the secret behind what we did there to make sure that it was as strong as possible. It, we had the same. We had four actors involved and uh, two were male, two female, two with lighter skin, two with darker skin. And we put them through an aging process so we made them, we went through like prosthetics to make them look 30 years older. So we weren't using a different person. It was the same person, but who looked older. And when we aged them, it didn't improve their gravitas, which we were surprised by. If it was a man or a woman, it didn't improve the gravitas. The skin color didn't improve that piece either. It was just the physical things, which was really surprising and blew up the hypothesis that we went into things uh, with. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your
2: host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview.
1: And Richard, now, now, like I said at the beginning, 130,000 people trained around the world. I'm curious, you clearly don't have time to do studies like this, um, but if you were to do another one, what are you most curious about or what would you try to look at?
0: Yeah, great question. I think, uh, you know, reflecting back on the study that I did, i would love to go back and do another study that was specifically on tone of voice because you know i, I really mm. scratched the itch that i had around uh, the body language but uh, we didn't we, we aimed in the study we aimed to keep the tone of voice the same on every single video so that it, it wasn't coming into play and we would mm. film it over and over and over again to get that right uh, but the tone of voice is something that. You know, I'm very well aware people judge so much, even from five seconds of hearing your voice, they will get clues from where you come from in the world. Are you male or female? What is your age? What is your education level like to be? And how do I feel about you? Do I trust you? Do I like you? Am I warming to you? What sort of conversation is this going to have? How do I feel about you? How do you feel about me? There's so much information that we get from that. And so I would love to be able to help people with that piece as well. So we do teach clients around uh, voice, but we, we haven't found any really strong studies that give us everything that we need in that space. So I think that that's, uh, that's an open area for, for people to dive into. So if anybody mm-hmm. listening to this podcast decides to launch a study, I'd, I'd love for them to send it to me.
1: And you certainly got a large database to, to draw from as you train people. Um,
0: mm. Moving
1: over to putting this in practice. So there's the underlying science of, of why these things, if they're implemented, can help you improve your leadership ratings and how people perceive us, confidence, leaders, leadership-like. Um, first to start, I mean, I also have lots of clients that I, that I work with that are seeking to to raise their leadership. And- the word authenticity um, get, gets bandied about a lot. And, and I'm just very curious to hear how you react when someone would say, you know, but hey, Richard, you know, I, I, I get all the science, but my authentic self is a shy, introverted, fact-driven engineer. Um, and in my culture, we're, we're meant to be deferential. I'm not like you. I'm not going to be a rock star of communication. Um, that's my authentic self. and. How do you respond to that? Or how do you think about that? Because I think authenticity is used in many ways.
0: Yeah, there's so much to say on this. And you're right that authenticity has been one of the buzzwords that's that's come up in uh, learning and development uh, for the last 10 years in sort of management programs as well. And so... I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about what it is and how to achieve it. So authenticity doesn't necessarily mean honesty and authenticity definitely doesn't mean just be yourself. Because uh, the biggest mistake I think people make around communication is they say, you know, All I need to do is just go in there and be myself. But if you're doing that, what you're saying is you're gonna take all of the bad habits that you've built up over a lifetime until today, and you're gonna take those in and present those to people and pretend that that's you. And so what I'd like everyone to question is that, who you are right now is just a set of habits. It doesn't define you. It's not your complete identity. It's not it's certainly not your complete potential. It's just the habits that you have, the survival habits, the coping habits, the communication habits that you've got into. And they are not who you are. And so if you think about... Uh, Somebody who often where we get um, to work with people is when they've been promoted from, say, manager up to VP. And they've got to go on stage and speak at the conference and really engage people to drive forward strategy and so on. And, And they might say exactly as you said, well, you know, I'm the person who likes to be quiet in the corner. Is that okay? And I say to them, what I'd like you to think about is a couple of things. Firstly, rather than think about the word authenticity, think about congruency. What somebody needs to see from you, if you're going to be the ambassador of the company or if you're going to be leading a group of, uh, of people, they need to see that your body language, your tone of voice and your words go in the same direction because you can be honest and seem to be as inauthentic and seem to be someone who's not trustworthy because your body language, tone of voice and words seem to have a mismatch. So I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I'm often uh, backstage where I'm, I'm quite often the third speaker at an event. So the first speaker is generally the CEO. The second speaker is often the CFO. And then I come on third to wake people up and energize them and give them something motivational. And so I'm often backstage, like stood next to the CFO. And CFOs, uh, quite often, might be the person where they think, okay, the CEO, CEO is the charismatic person who sort of gets people going, and the CFO has to come up and talk about the numbers, and they are backstage slightly shaking occasionally, uh, just wishing that they didn't have to go up. And you'll see them go on stage, and they'll say, um, hi, "Hi, everybody! Uh, really, really excited to be here today. Uh, the numbers are good, and uh, I just, you know, we're going to have we're going to have probably a really good uh, year ahead." And people are listening to it, thinking this person's lying to me. They're like there's clearly something wrong. I need to jump shit before this place goes under because what they're seeing, the person might be completely honest, right. but their body language and tone of voice doesn't match. And when we see that mismatch, we believe what we see, not what we hear. And so we, we're watching body language that seems to be uh, apprehensive. And therefore we think, what am I missing here? So we've got to make sure that we have congruency, everything heading in the same direction. That the second way to think about this, if people say, oh, but that's just not me, If you're given a position where you need to get on stage and you need to um, uh, lead or inspire people, you can think about it along the lines of being a surfer on the ocean. You know, you might be the kind of person who's very comfortable in a deck chair, but if you put a deck chair on a wave in the ocean, you're going to drown. Like, it's no point thinking about, what do I normally authentically do? Well, that's that's not going to work anymore, you know. But if you're the kind of person who likes to go to the beach with a a shovel and spade, great. Well, just stay there. That's not going to help you when you get out on the waves. So what you need to do as a surfer, if you're given a surfboard, you need to learn how to surf. You need to get to a point where you can ride the waves and competently be out there and survive and do a good job and look good doing it. And so that's where we tend to come in, is to show people how do we take the essence of your personality, so it is you, and bring you to life in a way that you can be the best surfer, or in this case, uh, the best keynote speaker or person leading a huge pitch. And it's always authentically coming from the essence of them, but it's having the techniques around it that allow them to succeed in that situation.
1: And so a lot of it is, is it, and you were trained as a professional actor, is this acting? Because there's that kind of tension, right? You've got to be something up there that the audience, the congruency concept. Uh, But again, you're saying it kind of still comes from you. How does the acting uh, fit in there?
0: Yeah, so I really love and I really appreciate my parents for uh, giving me the opportunity to go and do professional acting training. And I encourage everybody to do it in some way if you want to improve your communication skills just you know go to a night class evening class of some sort and you know go and do improv or do acting classes or so on because it introduces you to a way to connect with other people to bring words to life to communicate a story to create feelings and so on so what it's really given me a couple of things firstly if you look at great actors we really resonate with uh, none of them are doing it the same way as each other you know, people, people are really great actors, they have an essence that comes from them, an essence of truth that's coming through, an essence of who their personality is. And then they, they launch from that into creating a character. And so the same could be true if you are you know expanding your communication skills, wanting to be more dynamic in the choices that you have. It's coming from an essence uh, from you. But one of the key lessons I've always remembered from being an actor is that uh, there was... A question we were constantly asked, which is before you enter a scene, how do you want the other people in this scene to feel and how do you want the audience to feel? So it's always that outward focus of what is like the end goal of the feeling that would be created. Mm. So not just, you know, stand still, move your arms and say the words. It's never that. It's driven from a place of what feeling do you have right now as the character? But what feeling do you want the people on stage to have by the time you leave the stage? And so everything you're doing is driving towards that sense of I would love for them to feel, you know, in the case of an acting scene, it could be I want them to feel afraid or I want them to feel disappointed or I want them to feel entertained before I leave the stage. So if you enter uh, the same sort of principles into communication in business, you might think before an important meeting. I know what I'm saying, I know what I need to do, but how do I want them to feel by the time I leave the room? How do I have that outward focus? So it's key in order to avoid self-consciousness, just to think what is the feeling I would love people to have by the end of this meeting, sales pitch, update, talking them through a spreadsheet, going through a key strategy. What feeling do I want them to have? Is it enthusiasm? Is it clarity? Is it a sense of excitement about something? Where do I want them to get to? And so that can really help to shape everything you do in terms of, it it shapes your body language, shapes your tone of voice, shapes the words you choose. It shapes the the design of the slides that you might be using. It shapes everything towards that end goal. Uh, Because, you know, we all know you can give someone instructions, but if they don't feel like following them, but they don't trust the information. If they're not motivated, if they're not engaged by it, it's just not going to happen. So yes, have the yeah. words there, but you've got to focus on how they want to, how you want them to feel.
1: Yeah. So I mean, really important concepts here around congruency and that outward focus. Um, you started by talking about this is kind of an evolving journey, right? And you can learn this and get better. Uh, as you've trained so many people, you you know, you certainly and your team has a has a feel for those who really you know, take off from where they were and and, and improve dramatically um, versus, say, some that, that tap out or, or are not improving. Is, is there a key differentiating factor there?
0: Yes. I've seen this occasionally where there's a couple of um, pieces of advice that I give to clients that we work with. Once I was working on an event, there's about 20, maybe 30 people in the room and uh, i was i was just getting things set up and organized and clearly this person who was talking to the person next to him he didn't realize that i was the person running the event he thought i was just an attendee and he he said to his partner um there's no point me being here you know either you're good at communication or you're not this course is a waste of time and i introduced myself and said well i'm i'm running the day And uh, let me talk to you about this belief that you have. And so, you know, people would have heard about this concept of a growth mindset. If you've got a fixed mindset of this is who I am, this is how I will always be, then clearly expanding that skill set is going to be very challenging. Whereas if you go with a growth mindset, that sense of, you know, the elasticity of the mind to be able to take on new things and, and lean into becoming more, then suddenly it becomes much easier. Now, what I say to people when they go into coaching sessions with us is, I say, to them you know you've got to be prepared to be uncomfortable you've got to be prepared to be in a situation where you're changing your muscle memory away from what your current habits would lead you to do to go in a new direction that will feel weird and strange just like the first time you learned to drive a car you probably thought this is weird and this is uncomfortable and i'd rather just get out and walk because I, i could have been there by now And so the same is true when you start to expand your communication skills. It can feel hard at first. But if you lean into it and go through that sort of initial discomfort, you can then find more of who you really are. And so I I would always encourage people to make space for that journey uh, to happen. Uh, Another way that I say it is that if you imagine that there's a, a door on one side of the room and you're holding onto the door handle, there's no way for you to reach the other side of the room and touch the other wall hmm. unless you let go of the door. And a lot of people want to hold on to who, the, who I am right now and try and reach to the other side and it's never going to happen. So sometimes you just got to let go of who you've been recently to explore new habits and new parts of yourself to, to make that journey really work. Hmm.
1: It's a beautiful analogy. Richard, two quick questions here as we're coming to the end. Um, these parts around Body language and communication. I, I think Most people out there are thinking this is, you know, go up and it's a prepared speech. Do these same principles essentially apply to if you're kind of more in an impromptu? I think this gives people a lot of anxiety. They're presenting to the board and they're going to get grilled. Um, they don't want to look like the deer in the headlights. And we know gravitas can take you a long way there. Does, does mm. body language more or less function in that context similarly or are there differences?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, body language is a language, it's always communicating. And the funny thing about body language is that in order for the English language to communicate something, you have to open your mouth and say something. But body language is always communicating, all day, every day. And you know, to, to help people maybe feel more at ease with it, I always say there's no right or wrong body language. Some Some people sort of look down on folding your arms or they look down on putting your hands in your pockets. There's nothing right or wrong with any body language, the same as there's nothing right or wrong about any word in the dictionary. It's just a word that means something and might mean different things in different contexts. So your body language is communicating something at all times. And so, yeah, I encourage people to put body language into action in one-to-one situations, Uh, in small group settings, and then if they do need to do a big speech up on the stage, then essentially they're just expanding what they're already doing. So you don't need to wait for a big event to put things into action. So a quick example of that would be, uh, I sometimes talk to people about a palms down gesture. Palms down is a great way of showing a decisive message, Saying, you know, I must have this finished by two o'clock on Friday, or we are definitively the best organization for you to work with on this project. Palms down, strong, confident, closed message. Now, you could do that on stage in front of 2,000 people, or you could do that with one person. Uh, You could say, uh, if somebody says to you, how was your day today? You could do a palms down and say... I'm really confident about this meeting I just had. Uh, You know, I feel like I gave it everything I've got. And you're just practicing doing it. So then you can practice it in small situations and then use it in bigger situations if you need to.
1: And and I'd be remiss not to ask the question too. Here we are talking, um, you know, doing our recording here remotely, you in the UK, me in Spain. And of course we went through the whole pandemic. Um, Mm. Thinking about your, your presence online, similar principles too, or any practical strategy or thing that you want people to think about when they've shifted to an online remote or even hybrid setting now i imagine there's a lot of complexity in that yes
0: yes so there's a few key things that we tell people to do when they are communicating on screen and we're very privileged on our company in body talk where we've got i think it's four people on our team are former or maybe current BBC presenters. So they're very comfortable being in front of the camera and using microphones and so on. So early in the stages of the pandemic and the lockdown, we were leaning on them to figure out how do you you communicate well on camera? And essentially what we've come up with uh, our thesis on this is that what we're aiming to recreate is a sense of face-to-face communication. So you want to have a feeling like you're just across the table from the other person. That's really where we want to be because otherwise, you know, that um, uh, having somebody on video doesn't really help us. And so a few things that can make a massive difference for people. Um, So we talk about height, light, and the rule of thirds. So firstly, in terms of the height, most people who are doing virtual meetings still to this day, what do they have? They have their laptop on the desk in front of them, which is maybe, you know, 12 inches lower than where their eye line is, which means that they are constantly looking down. And what the other person sees on the other end is somebody looking down on them. So it makes it feel like they're sort of dominating them or... that they they might feel a bit sort of intimidating in some way so that position doesn't work Uh, you also get some people with an external webcam that's way too high and it looks like the eyes of god looking down upon them and it just doesn't come across well so a simple thing to say is with height you want to have eye-to-eye communication so you want to set up the camera exactly the same height as your eyes so if you if you put yourself in good physical posture lift yourself up measure it. your eyes to the desk, measure the height of the camera to the desk and it needs to be the same height. Uh, so that allows you to have eye to eye connection with people. Second thing to talk about is light there's lots of people who have sort of windows behind them which means that there's uh th- there's shadow on their face it's hard to focus on them it can make them look like they're in the witness protection program sometimes because you just can't really see their face or their facial expressions so you've got to have more light coming towards you than you have behind you so even for people who watch this uh, on video they'll see that Uh, Behind me, there's a bit of light, but right behind my head is the darkest part of my bookcase, which allows my face to pop a little bit more uh, there. And then thirdly, the rule of thirds. Anybody listening who has any photographic skills will know that if you're taking a picture of someone, you aim to get their eyes one third down from the top of the shot. And so by doing that, And by having enough distance between you and the camera, it means that you can get your hands on camera if you need to, in order to show some palms up, palms down, that sort of thing. And that's what they tend to do on the news. If they're framing a a, a news presenter who might be, say, the anchor for the evening news, well, what do you get? You get them, the, the camera is at eye level to them, And their hands are above the desk and they don't necessarily do that much in the way of gestures, but you sort of feel like they're just across the desk from you while you're watching it. So you have this engaged um, listener on the other side of that thing. So uh, height, light and rule of thirds can really help people in a big way.
1: You have suddenly made me very conscious. I'm going to go back and look at my recording to check where my eyes, (laughs) it's always that part where I may be looking at you, but because of the design of the way things are set up, I'm not looking at my video camera. Um, incredibly useful tips that, that most people are not aware of, but they're very simple once you're aware of them to hone in and look at those things. Richard, um, I just wanna thank you. You've, you are very passionate about sharing your insights and being out there and training people. Um, your book is, is excellent. You were born to speak. People can look at your website um, and obviously your training programs, but what is working with you look like? How do people reach out and explore that?
0: Yeah, I uh, appreciate it. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I, this was really a, a, a work of passion doing You Were Born to Speak. So thank you for mentioning it. I absolutely loved creating it and people have really enjoyed reading it. So uh, that's one way for people to simply uh, deep dive into what we've talked about today. But if they want to find out more about booking me or my team, getting coaching, booking me as a speaker, if they go to ukbodytalk.com, then they can see the whole range of services that we have there. People can find me on LinkedIn, Richard Newman Body Talk. And I'm also on Instagram, uh, at Richard Newman Speaks. And I aim to sort of share uh, ideas and inspiration with people every couple of days if I can.
1: Richard Newman, CEO and founder of Body Talk. Um, Richard, thank you for joining me on 97% Effective.
0: You're welcome. Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwenderoth.com.